Let me pray once more. Father, I'm thinking about what my daughter just told me. She said, I, I shouldn't bend my Bible. And I, I said, I, it's okay, honey, that's, the Bibles are meant to be bent, but they're, they're not meant to be twisted. So please keep me today. Please constrain my words. Make my words true to your words. Let not one of my words be bent out of out of uh, true north from your words. Will you speak in my speaking now? Will you grant the speaker to fade into the background and let the, the God of this word to come forward and to work? Um, every Sunday we desire, O oh Father, for a miracle to happen, for some ordinary person to stand up and speak words, and for the dead to be raised from the grave by that act. None of us has that in us ourselves. We, we look to you now. This moment is an act of faith that you would come and work among us through your word. So please, as I, as I so often pray, please make it clear. Please make it compelling to our hearts. Please show us Christ. Show us him. Show us his face. Grant us to behold him and thus be changed, I pray. Amen. Well, today we are beginning a new preaching rhythm at Grace. We're going to consider uh, 10 psalms a year. 10 psalms a year. A decade of psalms every summer. Um, there's 150 of them, which means that uh, we'll be done in 2037, I think. You know? it's, it's good to plan ahead. Yeah. And it's good that we know and understand and live in the Psalms. Live in them. The Psalms are not just to be read and understood. They're to be lived. And then we're to become psalm makers ourselves. Most of the Psalms are written by David. And they just about encompass every experience, every, every emotion we human beings experience in our souls. And yet, despite that variety, there is a common theme, a common, often repeated structure that you see in the Psalms. First, usually David, again, cries out and complains to God in a, in a righteous way, a, a righteous complaint about some threat, some fear, some suffering that he has. And then, as he's praying, David then like, remembers who he's talking to. Oh yeah, God. <laughs> He remembers who he's talking to, a, a promising God who makes promises and who is more than powerful enough to fulfill those promises. He remembers who he's talking to. And then you see this shift of the soul in David, a sort of spiritual chiropractic adjustment. Um, his, his external pressures have not changed. They haven't gone away. The betrayal is still there. The pain of loss still aches. It's still 3 o'clock in the morning, and he's still in this cave. That hasn't changed. And yet David has found his footing to face tomorrow. We need the Psalms. We need them for this reason, because we all need to face tomorrow. We all have trials and emotions, many of them we don't even understand sometimes. We need the Psalms to face tomorrow. Not all the Psalms have these three parts. Some of them are just like crying out, and then that's the end of the Psalm. Psalm 137 comes to mind here with this. Some are mostly reflecting on the God who makes the promises. Psalm 119 comes to mind here with this. 
Um, and then some of them are mostly the, the spiritual chiropractic adjustment, the, the taking the soul in hand and preaching to the soul who this God is. Psalms 42 and 43 come to mind. But all of them, all of them are written by real people facing real problems like you and me. And all of them are crying out to a real God who really hears, who really responds, and who really gives us ample evidence, ample evidence of his powerful love, which we will see today in Psalms 1 and 2. Psalms 1 and 2 have been considered one psalm in, in the ancient past in both Jewish and Christian traditions. In fact, in Acts 13.33, it's one little weird thing about our Bibles, um, the, the original text there, Paul quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, and says, in the first psalm, but he's quoting what we know as Psalm 2, verse 7. Um, so the English Standard there, version there renders that passage, Acts 13.33, as the second psalm, but that's not what the original translation says, but they just do that as convenience so that we're not confused. Like, wait, wait a second. Um, so it's fine. that Each psalm stands on its own just fine, but to avoid confusion, it seems that these two psalms were at one time considered one. And this makes sense when we consider the first verse of Psalm 1 and the last verse of Psalm 2. If you look at it there, they're both talking about blessing. Blessing. They're both talking about blessing. That's the theme of this. Blessing. Happiness. Or as the old Puritans might have, might have said, felicity. Happiness. Joy. That's what these and, and all the rest of the Psalms are about at bottom. Being truly happy. Not a, not a happiness that comes and goes with circumstances like the waves of the sea, but a happiness that is like Psalm 1, verse 3, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, no matter that the rest of the land has dried up in a drought. That kind of happiness that is stable and strong and independent of circumstances. A deep happiness. That's what the Psalms are about. A happiness, a blessedness that has roots that go deeper than anything on Netflix. <laughs> because it is stable, because its roots go down into the streams of water that give it life. This is the kind of happiness that comes from a life of accomplishment, of, of seeing things be accomplished in one's life. In other words, our work, verse 3, prospering. This is a God who prospers people, who is out for their blessing. Now, we also see in verse 4 that this happiness has a moral element to this. The wicked do not and cannot enjoy this blessedness. They cannot. They are like a plant you forgot to water for a few weeks when you went on vacation. And when you come back, it is not only dried up, it is gone. Because it dried up and flaked away and then blew away, literally. I, I did that recently. <laughs> I went out there one day. It's just gone. It's gone um, because it's disconnected from the streams of water back in verse 3. So then in order to not have that same end as the wicked, the blessed man, verses 1 and 2, Psalm 1 says, disassociates himself from the wicked in every aspect of his life from every aspect of their life, of their trajectory towards this wasting away. 
this futility, this death, whether walking or standing or sitting, whether it's the supposed wisdom of, of an out-and-out wicked people, or whether it's the lifestyle of a run-of-the-mill sinner, or whether it's just sharing in the laugh of a petty scoffer, the blessed man disassociates himself from them all. He doesn't remove himself from the world. You can't do that, but he does disassociate himself from them. But again, why? Because these people, these blessed people, the blessed delight themselves in those streams of water that will actually bring the highest blessing, the highest happiness, the happiness that is stable and unchanging, the happiness that God made us for. And thus, verse 2, they delight themselves in the law of the Lord. In the law of the Lord. That is the source, the law of the Lord. Again, we're not just to read the Psalms, but to live them, to live them. So the psalmist, he's been in church before. He's seen everybody's heads nodding. Yes, 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 the Bible is good, preacher. Thank you. Uh-huh. So he adds that the blessed, the blessed people meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Day and night. And the law of the Lord, when he says that, he just means all of the written revelation of God. All of it. And he meditates on it, the blessed meditate on it day and night. And the word here for meditate is literally something like grumbling or mumbling to yourself. Like there's a constant inner monologue. The blessed person delights in God's law and is constantly mumbling back to himself, preaching back to himself the very word of God for every moment of every situation of his day. And that, verse 3, is why he prospers. That's why he has this happiness, this strength that is independent of circumstances. And this is why, verse 4, the wicked do not. God is the creator of life, and when you disconnect yourself from him, for whatever reason it is, whatever, whatever reason, it doesn't matter, but you will shrivel up. You will shrivel up, and you will possess no life within yourself, and you will come to an end that way. You will perish. This God, the, the reason why he gives life is so that there might be fruit, prosperity, abundance, happiness. That's what he's after. That's what this God is about. That's what he wants. That's who he is. And therefore, that's what he wants to multiply in the world. Despite what you've heard, despite the headlines you've read, this is a happy God. This is a happy God. He wants to multiply that happiness all over the earth. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. And so, Actually, because he is such a happy God, such a generous God, in the future, there will be a judgment. Verse 5, and the wicked will not stand before him, approved before them. They will not be able to stand there in his council, in his throne room. Their, their walking and their standing and their sitting in their sin produced nothing but dead chaff. Not what this God wants. This God wants life, prosperity, joy, happiness. So, this is not a God of death, but of life and prosperity. And whether it was out-and-out wickedness, or run-of-the-mill sinning, or just living their lives laughing with scoffers, it will, it will have produced nothing, nothing but chaff. And to them, God will say, I don't know how you got here. I don't know your way. I don't know your way. How did you get in here? Time to go. Time to go. But the way of the righteous, he will know, verse 6, on that day of judgment, the righteous will stand before him. And, and the implication here is that they will truly enjoy 
all of the blessings in full that they had only in part in this life. That's the end game. That's God's end game. They will experience, they will experience the, the fact that, that that stream of water that they, they lived upon in this life, that, that, that gave some, them such happy stability, was, was just, a, just an hors d'oeuvres of what was to come. Just a taste of the Lord, of Yahweh himself. Okay, so to, to summarize the psalm, to put it real simply, the righteous disassociate from the unrighteous, verse 1, and they associate with God, verse 2, that's the, the happy, the blessed, the righteous, they disassociate from the unrighteous, and they associate themselves with God, verses 1 and 2, because they know the future, because they know that one day God will associate himself himself with the righteous and he himself will disassociate himself one day end of verse six with from the unrighteous so they know that god will do this and so they do the same thing in anticipation of that day in faith in that day or to put it another way verses one and two we must discriminate we must discriminate in order to experience the happiness of God, the blessing of God. We must learn to discriminate between the wicked and the righteous because one day God will discriminate. Because this is a discriminating God himself, verse 6. But in the meantime, verses 3 and 5, the, the, the differences between the blessed and the unblessed are they're harder to discern. Harder to discern. We, we all live in the same heat. In this age, we all live in the same, under the same droughts, and sometimes the, the wicked crackle with the life that they think they're living, just like a dry forest crackles with sounds right up until the point it is burned by fire and blown away, never to be seen again. So the person who wants blessing, and we all want blessing, we all do, all humanity wants blessing. The, the person who wants blessing must discriminate in those whom he associates with and what he delights in out of faith. Faith that true blessing is found in this God and that he, the God of blessing, does the very same thing. He too discriminates. He too discriminates and associates based on righteousness. Okay, well, before we, before we move on to what that righteousness is, what is that measuring stick, um, we, and before we consider Psalm 2, I want to consider more deeply a few principles from Psalm 1 that we, we need to see here, and they are, they are at the center of this pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of true, um, strong happiness that, again, supersedes circumstance. So the first principle is, that we should consider here is that there is not much difference at first between the righteous and the wicked. Again, everybody on this earth, there's not much difference between the, white, the righteous and the wicked because everybody wants to be blessed. Everybody wants to be happy. Even the person contemplating suicide is only contemplating that because they want to be happy and they can't figure out any other way to be happy than to leave this earth. And yet but there, it's still a dark pursuit of happiness, of relief, of refuge. We all want delight. We all want to prosper. That's not the question. That's not the question. And that's not Christianity. Christianity is not saying, turn that off. God never says, turn off that desire to prosper. We all want to prosper. We all want to be happy and blessed. The question is not whether we seek that, but how. 
The question is not whether we seek that, but in, in what source do our roots, the roots of our lives go down in order to seek that happiness? That's the question. That's the question. And that's upon everything else. That everything else turns on that question. Um, because there is a God who wants these things too. There is a God who wants for his people to prosper in all that they do. That's why the psalm says this. <laughs> That's why the psalm talks about the stream of water that is there for the people to prosper in because God wants his people to prosper. <laughs> That's who this God is. Um, so, as we think about this, we, we start to understand why why so many people today are unhappy. Unhappy. We are unhappy because we are disconnected from this God because we all seek happiness, but we want to seek it our own way. We want to seek it, in, short, in, in essence, by shrinking our lives, by lowering the bar, by making everything smaller and attainable by our own power, because that's all that we can attain by our own power, is, is small things. We've fallen, created human beings. This is why, this is why especially for men today, you know, for, especially for men, happiness comes from accomplishing something, from seeing the work of our hands prosper, of having a significant and sturdy goal and achieving it. And when you achieve it, especially for men, that's, you, you feel happiness then. You love that. But today, our, instead of accomplishing great things, instead of seeing great things be prospered, we, we, we shrink our goals to even smaller. And so, yeah, we, we, do, we do accomplish things, but we all know a consolation prize. We all know a participation trophy when we see it. We, we all know that. So, this is a God who wants to prosper us, who wants to do big things. Now, if I sound like one of those health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers to you right now, um, the, the reality is, actually, no, 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 they sound like me. <laughs> they sound like me, because I'm simply pointing, keeping my finger in the Bible, this is a God who wants to prosper his people. They're the ones who parasitically twist the truth here. God is not out to prosper us with ostentatious wealth. No, no. Not, not, not a wealth that comes outside of hard work. Hard work and doing things in the order that God prescribes, you know? Graduate from high school. Graduate from college if you, if you want to do that. You know, get a job, then get a wife, then get a baby. You know, you do that in order. And as, as someone else has said, you know, when, when a man decides to work hard in his life because he, he's working with faith in it, and this is a God who prospers his people. And so I'm going to work hard by faith, by faith. And I'm, I'm going to love my wife as, as best I know how to. I'm going to raise my kids. I'm going to work hard. And I have something left over to give to other people. And as, as someone else has said, when that happens, the cocaine bill goes way down. <laughs> when that happens, things start to change. Blessing starts to flow, start to prosper. <laughs> I mean, that's how our country has become so prosperous, <laughs> because the Word of God has worked that way in this nation. Um, so God is not out to prosper us with ostentatious wealth, but He is out when a person lives according to the law of God. In general, we will prosper. We will prosper. Um, 
And so we will prosper and we will accomplish things and it will be sweet and there will be happiness in that. Um, so, and, and you'll become, as you and I walk in the law of the Lord, we, as, as, we, as we think about that future standing before, before the Lord and we, we experience some of that future prosperity that God holds out for us in the future, we experience some of that now. You and I, we, we become, we start to bear strange fruit, fruit that, that grows up in us even though there's desert all around us, even though the society is just decaying and crumbling, we become, the church becomes, families become, households become, places where there's fruit growing up, and people walk by and go, what is going on with you? What is that? I want that. <laughs> Can I have some of that? We become oases in the desert. Strange fruit, strange fruit that grows up but for you, it's just another day in paradise. <laughs> Enjoying the, the prosperity of God. Prosperity of God. But, but let me make something very clear again. The blessed here, what we're talking about, the, the righteous here, are not in and of themselves better people than the wicked. Because the righteous and the wicked both want the same thing. They all want to prosper. We all want to have righteousness. We all want to have blessing and to be happy. The only difference in this world between the righteous and the wicked is where their roots grow down into, how they get their prospering. That's the difference. That's the difference. It's not whether you seek blessing, but which stream you depend on, whether that's of Yahweh or that of the wicked. Um, so this is why there's need for discrimination. We, we, we've been trained to think that that's a bad word, discrimination. Um, but even the most ardent anti-racists are the most discriminating people I know. We all, we all discriminate. <laughs> we all discriminate. Everybody does. The question is not whether we discriminate, but by what standard, whether that's a standard that's been conditioned into you by the wicked, by, by the sinner and the scoffer, or whether that's a standard that's been revealed to you, a standard that I'm revealing to you right now, a standard that actually leads to life and stability and prosperity and happiness. We all discriminate. The question is whether that standard for discrimination is leading you to life or death. Which is it? So this is why, this is why the, the modern philosophy of relativism is so evil. Relativism. It is evil. It is evil and should be opposed and stamped out wherever we find it. Because relativism says, you know, you know, there's whatever, man. You know, whatever. You know, it's like there's, there's lots of different ways to get, to get to prosper. It's cool, bro. You know, it's like whatever. You got your way, I got my way. It's good, man. And yet, and yet, you know, you know relative says, you know, some people get happy by getting high. Some people get happy by getting money. Some by pills. Some by religion. It's all good, bro. But if that were true, why are so many people unhappy today? Why, why, are we, why, why do psychiatrists have waiting lists that are like, you know, they're so long, it's like, even, it's like useless. It's like, why even have a list anymore? Why, why do psychiatrists to this day feel very secure about doing Zoom meetings no matter what and, and still not meeting face-to-face -face with their clients? Because they don't need to because they, they've got a long list of people waiting to come in and see them. We are so unhappy as a people. And I'm not saying don't see a psychiatrist. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we are so unhappy. Um, 
Why? Because we don't understand what God is calling us to in this psalm. So, what do I mean by this? Well, I mean, you might have thought at the beginning when I said disassociate from the wicked, you might have thought that I meant like, you know, like something like, ew, you little sinners, I'm going to stay away from you, you little nasty, wicked people, you know. That's, that's how people think of Christianity, you know. Like, we're, we're the righteous ones, and you're the dirty little scumbags, and why does need to stay away from you, right? Um, that's, that's, not, that's not what's happening here. The reason we're to disassociate from the wicked is, is not, ew, little sinner. It, it is that God is telling us to not settle for second best. God is not telling us, God is telling us, don't settle for this, for this little thing here that, that man can contrive, that, that's nothing in the end. It's just, it's just a lifelong version of a participation trophy made in China. Like, don't settle for that. Don't settle for that. This God is not, doesn't want us to settle for counterfeits. Not for, for that which will not hold in the days of drought. The, the blessed man does not settle for what the, the wicked and the sinner and the scoffer settle for. The blessed man knows that there is more in those streams of water than what they can provide. And so he runs hard after those streams of water. And as a product, as a, by virtue of the fact that he's running after those streams of water, the, a function of that is that he neglects those, those ways the ways of the wicked, the ways of the sinner, and the ways of the scoffer. Because he will not settle for second best. He will not settle for a counterfeit blessing. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis famously wrote, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's our problem. That's humanity's problem. Indeed, from, from Eden, Eve in the garden, settling for the apple up until now, and you and me, we are far too easily pleased. That's our problem. And so the Psalms begin with this monumental command, be truly blessed. Do not settle. Look up. And look down at this word because here, here in these words is a God revealed to you who is that living stream of water who wants, who wants you to settle for nothing less than true blessing whereby you might be, no matter what is going on in the world, a tree that is strong and stands by that water and is fed and that other people can come along and find shade under the branches of that tree. That is happiness. That is true prospering. That's what this God wants. This God does not settle for counterfeits because he loves us, 
Because he loves us, he says, disassociate and run hard after this. Delight in this. Delight in the law of the Lord. Delight in it and you will be blessed. There's the way. The thing you already wanted, the thing that I designed you to desire. Happiness, there's the way. (laughs) There it is. Be blessed. So again, it's, it's not that, that we disassociate ourselves from the wicked. You know, you, maybe today one of the applications you'll take out of here is, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll go cancel my Netflix account. Sure. Okay. Oh, sounds good. But we don't do that out of a, you know, out of a pietism, out of a goody two-shoes better than anybody else. No, we do it, ironically, out of hedonism, <laughs> a holy hedonism. A pursuit of the blessing, a pursuit of the pleasures that are in God. Pleasures that in this life will only be hors d'oeuvres, at their best, will only be hors d'oeuvres to what we will experience when we see them face to face. But nevertheless, those hors d'oeuvres are really good. <laughs> so we, pre- we, we, don't, we don't disassociate from the wicked out of a, ew, sinner. We... we We do it out of a pursuit of a holy hedonism, a pursuit of the very thing that God says, pursue. Blessing, happiness. We can only do that if we command and control our hearts to delight ourselves in God's law. Okay, now maybe you say, I know all that. I know what the Bible says. Yeah, okay. That's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist doesn't say, know your Bible. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the law of the Lord. That's what he says. Delight yourself in it. The devils know the Bible. (laughs) What is that? The devil knows the Bible. The devil doesn't delight in it. The devil hides from it, hates it. You will either delight yourself in the way of the wicked the place of the sinner in the seat of the scoffer or in the law of the Lord, those are the options. Those are the options available to you. But only one leads to happiness. Only one leads to the blessing that you seek. So what's it going to be? <laughs> what's it going to be? All right, well, now we come to... Uh, there's a lot of ways to apply this. There's a lot of ways to apply this text. Again, I, I could stand here and then instantly drive into the ditch of moralism and start to, you know, wag my finger at you and say, no, you should cancel Netflix. (laughs) Because the media is one of the chief ways that we do associate ourselves with the wicked, with the sinner, with the scoffer. You should delete TikTok off your phone. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because that's that's still under the, uh, on the surface, that the core issue here, the core issue here, and and it's fun to poke my finger at Netflix. (laughs) There's a lot of material to work with there. But um, the chief, that's down the road. That's down the road. But the the heart of the psalm is not a set of rules and pietistic moralism, but a person. A person. So I need to briefly fold in what we know as Psalm 2 with Psalm 1. The psalmist asks himself, Psalm 2, verse 1, if God is blessing himself, if we're all made to seek out happiness and joy and, 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 um, and prospering, then why? Why do the nations rage and want to throw off his rule? 
Why, why do they want to rebel against the very thing that they should be seeking? Why? Why? Why buck against the thing that, that you've been designed to, to enjoy? For again, we all seek blessing, even nations do, and even in war. Why, why do the nations insanely rebel against the Lord and His anointed, the King? The King. Well, the anointed is the king here and originally would have been David or one of his offspring. And yet it is no coincidence that this word anointed is translated into the New Testament as Christos or Christ. The Lord and his Christ. And whenever a new Davidic king, a new offspring of David came to the throne, he became in that enthronement moment, he became God's anointed ruler on the earth. It was as if on the day of his being raised to the throne, verse 7, God had begotten him. That son of David became the son of God on the earth to rule for God in God's place on earth. So it is no wonder that in the New Testament, the early church, and I read this earlier, the early church could see what God was doing. The first recorded corporate prayer of the church comes in Acts 4, beginning in verse 23, after the Sanhedrin beat up and threatened the disciples. And they come back to the church, but the church prays not for protection, but for boldness. And they pray, quoting Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. What's going on in their minds there? That they could see that when Jesus came, that Jesus was the Christ. The, the, The word Christ is not a last name of Jesus, it's a title. He is the anointed king of God. He is the ultimate king of David. He was God's, he is God's anointed son. And God, verse 6, set him on his holy hill on a gory Roman cross and over his cross made a sign that read what? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. And at that very moment when all the nations, Jews and Gentiles, conspired together to finally kill the anointed son, when they finally got him where they wanted, asphyxiating on that cross and a spear going into his side, blood and water flowing out, when they finally put God's anointed son into the ground, while they raised their Passover glasses of wine in celebration, when they finally thought, verse 3, that they had burst the bonds of God's rule over them, verse 4, the Lord of heaven laughed. <laughs> the Lord of heaven laughed and held them in derision. For when on Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended, he ascended to the Father's right hand, and in his ascension, he was enthroned as God's king, God's anointed ruler over the earth. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And now the Lord says to his son, verse 8, just say the word and I'll give you any and every nation as your heritage. Everyone. Um, And if they don't bow the knee to you, verse 9, you have your rod of iron. You have your rod of iron and any nation that does not bear fruit, that continues to buck against you, you may shatter it. The way a potter might make a pot and then realize, no, not quite right, need to start over and shatter it and start over. So then we Christians, we, we, now, we now come to the nations, not with our hat in our hands saying, you know, hey, you know, if it's a good idea to you, if you think, if you like our entertainment, hey, maybe you might want to come to church, you know, hey. No, 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 no. We, our message now, we come with terms of peace, terms of surrender, 
because Jesus is king. Jesus is king over all. Jesus is king. We come in his name with terms of surrender and peace. We come saying, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son now while there's time before the judgment. Kissing the son being very particularly, make it very specific, believe in him and repent. Bow the knee before your king. But there is a carrot and a stick here. A stick is the rod of iron. But look at the last two lines of Psalm 2. Yes, on the one hand, his wrath is quickly kindled. We should fear him. We should run from him. I prayed earlier for Diane Feinstein and Alex Padilla. They need to kiss the sun. They need to bow their knee to this, their king. They should fear him and they should run from him. And yet, at the same time, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The one that we should run from is, ironically, the one we should run to at the same time. The terms of peace we bring is the gospel that we ourselves have come to discover that those streams of water back in Psalm 1 verse 3 had their headwaters in the side of our Lord pierced for us where water and blood came from his side that we might be forgiven and cleansed of all of our rebellion. The only difference between us and the wicked is that we've been cleansed by those waters. That's the only difference. Of all of our wickedness, sin, and scoffing, And then we discover that when he ascended, he provided us his spirit who flows to us streams of living water. The spirit flows Jesus' own resurrection life to us now that we may live in his life and truly experience little by little, day by day, the happiness that he experiences in the Trinity, the happiness with the Father that transcends circumstance. Thus, when we meditate on God's law, Christ is clothed before us. It's not just a set of rules, but a person that's portrayed before us. A risen king, the most happy and most blessed of all people. Our risen king, Jesus. Okay, so, so here, here now, we, we come to the application. Come to the application. That when we, when we meditate on God's law and then we mumble it back to ourselves, we talk under our breath back to ourselves of God's law, we're we're preaching to ourselves, we're not just preaching the law back to ourselves, we're not just preaching rules back to ourselves, good ideas back to ourselves, and every moment that we might imagine, and every moment that we might experience in our lives, what we're doing there is we preach the law of God back to us, we're preaching to ourselves, and all of it, three simple words, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He is king over all. He's king over all. Jesus is king. When I'm I'm reading the newspaper, when I'm trying to replace the brakes on a 2009 Toyota Corolla and a bolt breaks off, (laughs) Jesus is king. You see, Jesus is king there. And when I know that Jesus is king, the bolt breaks off and I, and I don't lose heart. And, there, and there's some reaction to me there in that moment that is happy. <laughs> Weird. Strange. I mean, I'm not happy. Of course I'm not happy. I'm not happy. But I'm happy. Why? Jesus is king over that. Jesus is king over me trying to figure out how do I, what do I do next? 
besides call Anthony Willis. What do I, <laughs> what do, I do next? Um, Jesus is king there. Jesus is king over gardening and making love and buying junk on Amazon and preaching a sermon or skiing or voting or whatever. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And in all of that, that, that is the, the living water, that there is a risen king who really does live over my circumstances today and, and who lives and reigns over it in such a way as to prosper me, to prosper you, to prosper this world Again, not like the health, wealth, and gospel prosperity preachers, but prosperity. He means to do this to, to make us happy, to make us blessed in every aspect of our lives. And thus, we, he calls us today to take that word and to, to see my reign and to be, to be led by my reign as your risen king in all of it. All of it. Well, what about, yeah, that too. All of it. All of it. He is king. Because he is the stream. He's the stream that gives prosperity to all of it. The fruit that we will, the fruit that you and I, when we get to judgment and we present to him, here's the fruit that I gained from my life. All that fruit will only be because our roots were into him. (laughs) We'll only be giving back to him what he produced himself by his spirit in us in our life anyway. There's no pride among the righteous. There is only happy gratitude for this king who reigns over us. And in that happy gratitude, we learn to enjoy his blessings in this life, not lusting over them, not grabbing onto them, not lusting for more, but giving thanks for his generosity to us and living in a a happy stability despite the world falling down all around us. There is no pride among the righteous, only joyful gratitude of his gifts to us. The only difference between the righteous and the wicked is underground in what we depend on and what we delight in by faith. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, delighting in his law, our risen sovereign king. Let me, let me pray now. Father, will you please, will you please reign as our king? I want to pray now for each person here and those who are listening online that you would bring wisdom and insight to each one of us. Bring your word, your royal law to bear upon us in new areas of life this week in new areas of life where we are wrestling or struggling, where we find ourselves with lack, or we find ourselves flush and tempted to trust in your gifts instead of the giver. Bring the reality of your royal reign over us into every aspect of our life, all that you are for us, Lord Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king, Bring that to bear in all of our life, we pray. The fruit of this will be a strong and abiding happiness, one that the world cannot take away. Make us this kind of people and glorify yourself in us. 
as others have said before us, our chief end is to glorify you, and the way that we do that is by enjoying you forever. Will you grant us, will you make us a people that enjoys your reign in every aspect of our lives, we pray. Get glory in unexpected places this week in our, in our lives, I pray. Amen. So, receive the benediction. May the Lord of blessing cause you to truly experience the blessing and prosperity of life, resurrection life, in Him. And now He commissions you, brothers and sisters, to go declare to your world His terms of peace, His terms of surrender, and the reward of all those who seek Him and find their refuge in Him. Go in that blessing and under that commission, you privileged people. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.